Labor's Untold Story, Richard Boyer and Herbert Morais discussed the U.S. entry into World War II. The war began for the United States on December 7, 1941, with a Japanese sneak attack at Pearl Harbor. From the first important segments of American monopoly capital, much of it in the Midwest, were dazed and resentful. And even those dominant sections believing that German imperialism had to be contained were often worried by the fear that it was the wrong war in the wrong place against the wrong foe. If the war was an anti-fascist war, as far as the people were concerned, it was a war for profit as far as monopoly was concerned. And it was concerned, all right. Only a redistribution of wealth on a monumental scale, taxing the American people to the tune of billions that were handed to Monopoly in the shape of government war contracts and huge tax-free plants, induced Wall Street's tycoons to participate in a national unity that made them uneasy, even as it made them rich, almost beyond counting. Some 117 billions of dollars in war contracts went to 100 of the largest corporations in the country. Corporate profits soared to an all-time high, 250% higher than the pre-war level, while prices rose 45% and wages were frozen at 15% above the 1941 level. Even with these incredible profits clearly looming before it, big business refused to cooperate in the war effort until it had secured its own terms both as to profiteering and control of the people's billions used by government in war production. A temporary National Economic Committee report had predicted this state of affairs in 1940 when it declared, quote, Speaking bluntly, the government and the public are over the barrel when it comes to dealing with the businesses in a time of war. The experience of World War I, now apparently being repeated, indicates that business will use this control, the planned economy being set up in anticipation of war, only if it is paid properly. In effect, this is blackmail. Welcome back to Ending the Myth, the podcast where we occasionally discuss Greg Grandin's book, The End of the Myth. <laughs> Between long diversions about labor history, fascism, and Andrew Jackson musical. <laughs> Populism, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Still think about it, at least once a week. Rent free in my head. <laughs> well, I'm Munya. And I'm Brian. And that's right. I am bringing us in today because we have a very, very special guest for you. Some of our loyal freaks listening might recall that Brian and friend of the pod, Justin Roll, did a four-part series on the presidency of one Harry S. Truman way back in October of 2020. They dug deep into the lies, the crimes, and the horrors of our most mediocre president. <laughs> we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to check that out. Uh, but today we had to bring Justin back, uh, teaming up with Brian again. 
an iconic duo to give us the Cliff Notes version of an eight-year time span that they spent approximately like 20 hours dissecting a year ago. I mean, seriously, it was like, Literally. it was a deep dive. Like, it was, it was amazing. That's not far off as an estimate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Justin is now employed, but more importantly, he is a longtime friend of the podcast and co-host of History Sucks Podcast. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. Um, whatever generic podcast thing I'm supposed to say, uh, it's great to be on the show. Great to talk about Truman. And uh, yeah, we'll get into it. Yeah, well, you're you're basically an expert, man. So this is this is going to be great. And I just like to thank whatever listener took up uh, my advice from the Truman uh, show that we did, Justin, and offered you a wood chopping job to get you to get you back <laughs> in the employment market, <laughs> off off the dole and back to work. You know? Yeah, right. Appreciate Although I think it, we yeah. can all thank Biden, really. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. Hey, you know, most most employment gains uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of any country suffering a major pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> so we do have a lot to cover uh, with the U.S. entering World War II, single handedly defeating fascism and creating democracy in Europe and taming the Soviet beast. <laughs> Maybe we can start with the U.S. entering World War II. What? takes the u.s so long to enter that war problem number one is as you might have gathered from our discussion of the depression and the capitalist class's obsession with mussolini not a ton of people in the capitalist class were super excited or saw any particular gain in getting directly involved in the war for a while <laughs> some Let's just say I uh, thought it make they make more money selling to all sides of the war. Uh, some did even after the U.S. got in the war, and others, uh, let's just say, didn't exactly see the Nazis as enemies, <laughs> to to put it nicely. And so, basically, capital—they're not super motivated to enter the war on any sort of moral cause. They're only going to enter the war on their terms. And as we sort of mentioned that opening quote, they essentially put. FDR over the barrel and start making demands. Otherwise, they're going to go on capital strike. And one of those demands is they want control over key positions in the FDR administration. Uh, so just to give an example, Edward Stettinius leaves his position on the board of U.S. Steel and as VP of GM to become Roosevelt's Secretary of State. Nelson Rockefeller leaves his position on the board of Chase National Bank and Creole Petroleum, an oil company that operates in Venezuela, to join the State Department as the coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, which oversees U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. Weird that he went from an oil company operating in Latin America to overseeing foreign policy in Latin America. Was, was, this, was this company actually it's called true. Creole Petroleum? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was Jesus a Christ, subsidiary of Standard Oil. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and of course, he would become more famous for going on to found Rockefeller Records. So, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, you know, uh, financier uh, Bernard Baruch, uh, who had provided the crucial financial aid in Harry Truman's 1940 Senate campaign, uh, would again make an appearance as FDR's advisor to the Office of War Mobilization. Where they handed out lucrative war contracts. These are just some of the more egregious examples, but I mean, 
FDR starts filling his administration with hundreds of corporate lawyers, you know, financiers, former CEOs, etc. Uh, you know, as a condition to get U.S. capital on board with the war effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And, you know, it is indicative, like when I guess like a hundred, like hundreds of, uh, you know, corporate financiers like start coming on an administration, you could see where the tide is turning, right? Because that just increases influence a lot. Okay, well, so that was why it took, I guess, like so long. But how did the U.S. choose to fight that war? Then, I mean, during that World War Two, Europe was just getting like completely decimated, right? So how did the U.S. enter and choose to fight that war? Yeah, I mean, so the U.S. and its European allies, they basically spent the better part of the 1930s doing what American capital was doing, which is uh, avoiding actually having any serious discussion of fighting fascism at all costs. And in fact, trying to nudge the Nazis east as best they could, like, <laughs> hey, you know, uh, what about that country over there, the Soviet Union? Uh, maybe you would go like to go over there for a change. Uh, probably this policy was summed up or, you know, feelings in the U.S. by uh, was summed up by Senator, then Senator Harry Truman in 1941, when he told the Senate, if we see Germany is winning, we ought to help Russia. And if Russia is winning, we ought to help Germany. And that way, let them kill as many as possible. Uh, that probably sums up American capital's opinion in the summer of 41. Now, when he says, you know, we should help Russia if the Germans are winning and Germany if the Russians are winning. You can guess which side, though, they're going to help a little bit more. Uh, you know, mm. the Spanish Civil War gave an indication of that one. <laughs> you yeah, there's once... this whole notion that uh, the U.S. is sort of uh, has this isolationist foreign policy, you know, before World War II. And I don't think that's completely true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, go on on that. Um, I mean, I would just say, you know, we, <laughs> we, we definitely uh, got involved in that bloody war of, uh, you know, World War One. Yeah, I think I, I know we we didn't enter, uh, you know, the, the League of Nations failed, you know, that was basically tanked. I mean, that had its own problems. But I think that's where kind of like that sentiment comes from is because mm-hmm. we didn't make the League of Nations thing happen. Yet, when I think Truman's quote, you know, so listeners will remember our discussion of the League of Nations. We talked about the progressive era and why it failed. And it basically failed because guys like Henry Cabot Lodge, etc., were coming out and saying, like, why deal with the Europeans on an equal playing field? We're not equals. Like, we can take what we want now. Like, we came in at World War I at just the right moment, the very end, in order to take the spoils. And I think they kind of were seeing World War II as the same thing, which is, you know, speaking to Truman's quote, like, let's just let the Europeans kill themselves and then we'll just swoop in and we'll just take everything, uh, which, you know, uh, you know, is indicative of the, you know, of the World War One mindset and the, you know, profit bonanza that came from World War One for U.S. corporations. Uh, and yeah, I mean, this idea that the U.S. was somehow isolationist. I mean, the U.S. was occupying Haiti during the 1930s uh, and launched a war against Nicaragua, an invasion of Nicaragua during the 19th. I mean, the U.S. was doing stuff overseas. It just wasn't doing anything about fascism overseas, uh, which is maybe a different problem than isolationism. Um, but yeah, I mean, speaking to this point, I mean, once the U.S. does enter the war, 
they spend most of the time in their time in the European theater, just tooling around North Africa, just sort of like driving tanks in the desert, uh, getting murked by like fifth tier German soldiers uh, in Kasserine Pass, etc. They're mainly just trying to reconstitute like the old European empire across North Africa that had been disrupted by Mussolini, his invasion of Ethiopia in 35. They also used this time, by the way, to funnel Lynn Lisaid that was marked for Britain to the Saud family, creating our long, healthy relationship with Saudi Arabia at this time. Um, you know, this will not come up in the future, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> isn't the Adam Curtis movie, like Bitter Lake, cover that a little bit or something like some kind of ne- negotiation between the FDR and the Sauds? Yeah, I think he even uses the footage, uh, and it's killing me now that I can't remember the name of the boat, but they, they meet on a little, like, pleasure yacht uh, out in, <laughs> you know, the whatever, the Gulf Sea or whatever, and it's uh, Roosevelt and, oh, I can't remember what Sal is, is in charge at the time, and uh, I think they give Roosevelt a goat, so it's a very weird picture of Roosevelt, one of the Sal's, and, like, a goat. On a, just hanging out on a boat together <laughs> but, <laughs> really cool. but the, the key is is this is the u.s prying away the middle east from britain right and bringing it into the u.s sphere of influence similarly the u.s which had a growing position in the pacific but was still dwarfed by britain's you know imperial possessions in the pacific uh spends its war in the pacific doing an island hopping campaign uh, which on some level makes sense until you really start to follow it and where it goes. And all of a sudden you start to realize like, oh no, they're just securing colonies <laughs> throughout the Pacific, <laughs> throughout the Pacific Ocean and avoiding doing the one thing that could actually help the real war, which has happened in China, which is attacking like mainland Japan directly. The U.S., you know, going back to Europe though, the U.S., it invades Italy in September of 43, uh, which is, actually after Mussolini has been forced from power in Italy by partisans uh, and has to flee. Uh, Essentially the country's already fallen into chaos and the partisans have done like the bulk of the fighting and the U S just sort of shows up to ensure that the partisans don't take over the country. Uh, This is going to be a theme by the way. Um, You know, they promised the Soviet Union multiple times uh, since the entry of the U S into the war that they're going to open a second front in mainland Europe. Uh, They, consistently put it off over and over again finally they do the d-day landing but only after the soviet army had broken the back of the nazi war machine at the battle of kursk essentially by the time of the normandy landings the defeat of the nazis by the soviet union was inevitable you know the only thing left was who was going to get what part of europe and you know that's essentially why the u.s enter the war in france uh in the pacific theater you know again they're collecting this island chain but allowing the chinese to do all the actual fighting of the bulk of the japanese military in china and there's a theme here about what the u.s is is doing militarily and it's more about empire and collection than it is about uh actually defeating any of these forces Uh, well in japan like we still have like a huge base and like tens of thousands of soldiers in uh okinawa i think it is yeah like to this day which is an interesting story i mean i think there's twenty five thousand troops currently in okinawa and basically what happened is after the war 
the U.S. essentially turns Japan into a colony, but more importantly, turns it into a, a land sort of airstrip for attacks against the Soviet Union, right? So that they can launch bombers from Japan and so you and then later China after that becomes important. And over the decades, uh, the presence of the U.S. becomes so unacceptable to the Japanese population, uh, it becomes a real political issue. And the U.S. strikes a bargain with the Japanese, which is they'll move all that equipment and troops to Okinawa, which for those not versed in these things, which, you know, I understand it's most Americans, but Okinawans are actually like historically, you know, ethnically to the sense that, that exists different than the Japanese. Uh, they're actually like a conquered people. Uh, the Japanese uh, essentially invaded and took over the island. And the Japanese essentially are it's like a big fuck you to the Okinawans. Like the Japanese are basically like, oh, yeah, uh, leave Japan. Oh, yeah, you just go to Okinawa. Fuck those guys. And so, you know, there's been a, a very uneasy relationship now that's been created between the U.S., Okinawans, and the Japanese government uh, because the Japanese have basically told the Okinawans, you fucking deal with this. <laughs> yeah. Put everybody over there. But yeah. Yeah, good times. But yeah, I mean, the U.S. Uh, reconstitutes its sort of colonies in the Philippines. It creates relationships with places you probably never heard of, like Plow, you know, reconstitutes its colony in Guam, you know, uh, <laughs> gets involved in a place we'll hear about later at the time referred to as Indochina. Um, you know, it's it's engaging in imperialism, mm -hmm. if you will. And so, wait, in Guam, though, like, when you say reconstitute, that means that they had, like, their colony before, lost it, and then basically, like, you know, regained it? Yeah, the Japanese take over a lot of U.S. Uh, colonies in the Pacific, right? Most specifically the Philippines, which is MacArthur, if you were, like, in history class, you ever saw MacArthur, like, walking out of the water, like, onto a beach and going, you know, oh, I'll be back or whatever. Yeah, and that really <laughs> old, like, uh, black and white, like, island hopping video you might have yeah. watched in uh, history class if you're, like, an elder millennial. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And if you, you know, if you hear about things like the Bataan Death March and stuff, that was U.S. soldiers who were in the Philippines and were captured by Japanese forces while MacArthur speeds away at his pleasure yacht going, I'll avenge you, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a real theme in MacArthur's life, but yeah. Oh, wow. um, but uh, yeah, the U.S. essentially... And the thing is, it's like the Philippines have become a kind of a, a slightly derelict colony by this point, too, like, and the U.S. is really going to reconstitute its, its own power in the Philippines after mm. the war, you know. Um, Got it. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, so that was, like, basically all of the, you know, abroad, obviously, like, you know, imperialism was happening, like, around the world. It wasn't just, like, within Europe and especially after the war. Um, but mm -hmm. let's, like, bring it back to the domestic fear for a sec. Um, at the time, we saw a transition from the broadly popular Henry Wallace to the less popular perhaps even unknown <laughs> Harry Truman <laughs> as like Roosevelt's vice president. And this is like at a crucial time in 1944. So um, let's just like start out. Who is Henry Wallace? Sure. So Henry Wallace came from a farming family. Uh, they even had a farm journal called, uh, you know, Wallace's journal. Wallace supported FDR in 1932 and FDR would eventually make him Secretary of Agriculture. 
And at the, you know, 1940 DNC, um, FDR full-throatedly supports Wallace over other challengers for VP. And uh, Wallace would become known as a populist friend of farmers and in some circles an alleged fellow traveler. So Uh-oh. when he comes on, yeah. Hey. Uh, you know what that means, and maybe you don't. <laughs> but yeah, when maybe, he comes maybe explain on... what fellow traveler means real quick for anybody that's listening that might not know. Sure. So a fellow traveler would be somebody that's not necessarily a member of a political party like the Socialist Party or Communist Party, but is, you know, definitely a supporter of that party. So like so for example, like one one person who is accused of being a fellow traveler was um Woody Guthrie with uh, the Communist Party. So he would, you know, sing about you would like demonize people busting unions and say things like, I'm not a member of the Communist Party, but I'd be a wise man if I was, you know, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Senator Bernie Sanders, fellow traveler of the Kim regime in North Korea. So we we have our own examples today. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But but yeah, I mean, for those, you know, who are maybe this Wallace name is ringing a bell, we we talked about him and again in our episode about the Great Depression. And basically, I mean, we credit him, I think correctly, that uh, he at least oversees the revolution in American agriculture, where it's instead of, like, hey, uh, let's completely strip mine the soil in order to get like every ounce of you know crop out of it we can. He's like, hey, what if uh, we treated let's create the so- a dust bowl? <laughs> yeah, let's see, going from the plan of let's create a dust bowl to hey, what if we uh, I don't know applied any sort of actual farming technique to agriculture <laughs> so we don't just destroy uh, one of the like best croplands on the planet. Uh, but but because of that he's he's extremely popular. Which kind of gets us to this this forty four convention. What happens in the forty four convention, Justin? And why is your family personally responsible? <laughs> yeah, yeah, explain yourself, sir. <laughs> explain yourself. <laughs> this, this is where this is where uh, I, I get canceled. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, get so ready I mean, for the medium call out post to uh, show up. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fine. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, before we get into that, it might be good to have a little bit of context on the 44 DNC, Democratic National Convention, and why this is a hinge point. So like why, mm-hmm. why we, we should understand like what happened during the previous decade, what forces were at play. So I think one thing to think about is, you know, when FDR runs for the first of his two terms i believe uh first one was in 1932 if you do the math you know four <laughs> years by four years uh so the convention at the time voted for his vp to be cactus jack garner and so cactus jack was from texas you know conservative congressman enemy to labor uh friend to texas oilman and he was extremely powerful uh, he was actually speaker of the house in congress you know like nancy pelosi is now so like now, his- you hear this guys like for all the travis scott fans out there like uh cactus jack he uh, this is exactly what you were supporting when you're going at cactus jack cactus jack is not just the travis scott thing you are supporting a conservative hardline like southern like senator you said Justin? yeah from texas 
from Texas. Yeah. From yes. Texas. You're endorsing the state of Texas. <laughs> your consumption choices, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, when when Cactus Jack goes from being Speaker of the House to VP, like that's no accident. That represents a concession to Capitol. Once FDR's two terms are up, uh, Cactus Jack will step in. Uh, FDR will step back, and you'll get your guy to de- deregulate and uh, crush the labor movement. Uh, but you know, as FDR throughout the 30s passes in his administration, passed New Deal legislation, often just steamrolling Congress to do so. Uh, labor gains power. FDR becomes, you know, hugely popular among the people. He starts winning elections by gargantuan, you know, margins, you know, like 20 points in oh, 1936, wow. something <laughs> like that. Over 20 points. That's a landslide. And as the sitting VP, uh, you know, at the time, Cactus Jack gets pissed off at uh, New Deal legislation and his backers. And so he starts working to undermine some of FDR's New Deal legislation and as well uh, speaks against FDR's infamous court packing plan, which is ev- eventually, you know, defeated, although, you know, FDR does get to push through his New Deal friendly judges uh, into the Supreme Court. Uh, so in 1940, um, FDR bucks the customary, you know, uh, traditional two-term limit and decides to run again for a third term and quite easily defeats Cactus Jack for the presidential nomination at the 1940 uh, DNC. Yeah, somebody whispers in FDR's ear, uh, only doing two terms is just a custom. You, you don't have to pay attention to that. You can just keep running. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah. damn. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, hell yeah. By the way, one of the first things that Congress does after FDR's death is move to make that not a custom, but a law. <laughs> Only two yeah. terms. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's definitely a reason for that. That's why yeah. this whole thing about like uh, supporting term limits for, uh, you know, people in Congress, et cetera, is always like, like, I don't know. For I, I think it's kind of like an, an attack on, uh, you know, left politicians because it takes a long time for, you know, left politicians to gain, you know, uh, credibility and uh, notoriety. Yeah. Well, the hardest part is like starting your political career if you're on the left or whatever, because, you know, the easiest way to start a political campaign is to have a lot of money to begin with and to have yeah. like friends and the you know in broadcasting and things like that who are willing to give you free publicity uh which you're never going to have on the left and so yeah i mean term limits basically only hobble left candidates i mean that is just one of those things where it's like you're really missing the point about why american politics are fucked up (laughs) it's it's not because senators are old all right yeah Yeah. (laughs) missing the cart for the horse you know yeah generational politics um and generational Mm -hmm. differences are not really as uh wide as uh (laughs) you know the main reason of why we are in this uh quite declining predicament that we're in today so At this point in 1940, in some ways, the narrative is that FDR's uh, power is diminished. You know, they lost the court packing fight and would only win by 
10 points in the presidential election in 1940. <laughs> <laughs> Only went by oh, another no. massive landslide. Oh, no. Not another <laughs> massive landslide. But even with this in mind, FDR is still hugely popular. Like people like such as LBJ are actually even running on uh, FDR's court packing plan. And, you know, also keep in mind, FDR has the powerful CIO labor pack behind him. And at this point in 1940, he gets Henry Wallace, our fellow traveler, on his ticket. And, you know, we, we already talked about uh, Henry Wallace, but I would just say, like, going from Cactus Jack as VP to Henry Wallace you know, you can see that as, uh, you know, a big shift in uh, the power of labor and the power of uh, and popularity of FDR's administration at the time in 1940. And, you know, after, you know, FDR and Henry Wallace win by 10 points, you know, Henry Wallace kind of makes a name for himself. I think in the, you know, the previous podcast, we mentioned... Henry Wallace's 1942 speech, which you, if you read it now, it's like jaw-dropping. Uh, he talks of a century of the common man, the common mm -hmm. people on the march. He speaks glowingly of like the Russian Revolution and the Soviet <laughs> Union. And he talks of a people's revolution. People are on the march. It's amazing that a U.S. vice president, sitting vice president, uh, could give a speech like that. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, this is known as a century of the common man speech. And it's a direct response to Henry Luce from Life, Life Magazine, which people understand Life Magazine is like the media item of this time period, right? It's it's setting a lot of the tone of discussion for average people. And, you know, Henry Luce had an article called The American Century, where he basically is like, you know, this is the century where the American empire is going to be ascendant essentially over the globe and, you know, all this kind of shit. A new Pax Romana, or a Pax Romana, but Pax Americana is going to be like put on the planet. And, you know, Wallace responds to this with, no, no, this is the century of the common man, which he says begins with, yeah, the American Revolution, but then immediately pivots where he's like, oh, and then the French Revolution, which I mean, forget yeah. the fact that he upholds the Russian Revolution, like what American president would say, like the French Revolution was good, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, finally, he, he walks you through the day, you know, the time period. And it's like, and then, you know, the Russian Revolution, that was the last you know, step. And then we got to take our step now. <laughs> Incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like that, that, that it, it is pretty, I can't even really imagine a VP like, uh, in my lifetime, like even remotely saying what, uh, Henry Wallace was saying back then. Like, you know, obviously there's limitations within like, you know, the U S like federal government, but, uh, you know, it did, it did seem like, you know, the characterize of Henry Wallace being a fellow traveler seems to ring true like throughout his speeches, even when he, you know, got to the vice presidency. So, you know, um, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? So, yeah, it's, um, the kind of, it's the kind of speech that Kamala Harris wants to give, but can't because too many Bernie bros won't get off her back. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you ass, know, the but... massage noir is just out of control. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, Wallace was definitely in in favor also of you know easing tensions with uh, the Soviet Union, you know, avoiding uh, you know a possible Cold War. Yeah, yeah, which is is you know people have to remember at the time you know starting in forty two, the Soviet Union is officially our ally. <laughs> Right. We, we at least publicly, we've not moved to uh, there, the enemy incarnate yet. Right. Yeah. OK, so we talked about Henry Wallace. I think I have a good like grasp of who he is. So this Truman guy, he comes in. Um, what's so different about him? Right. He's in the same administration, I'm guessing. Right. Like, so uh, I assume that he would probably be aligned with FDR as well. Like, how was Truman's like, you know, who is this guy? And, um, you know, how did he become, like, FDR's VP? Sure. So, I mean, Truman, some would call him the greatest president we've ever had. <laughs> Maybe some people on this podcast might have done that. Look, sometimes 16-year-olds, <laughs> uh, they they want to talk about game theory. They get a little misguided. <laughs> <laughs> we, need to, we need to unearth this, Brian. We need to find your like uh, your high school essay saying how Truman was amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really I'm, sure, essay. I'm sure it's very well written and considered. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Truman is an unremarkable man. He's a failed businessman, a failed uh, haberdasher, in fact, and a product of the Pendergast machine in Kansas City. So he's not, you know, when he initially runs for Senate in Missouri, um, he's not the Pendergast machine's first choice to run. Uh, you know, they kind of you know, line people up, pick who's going to run and then put their, you know, forces behind them. He's not even their second choice. Uh, you know, a number of people <laughs> drop drop out and uh, it, it's eventually his turn up to run. And so, uh, you know, the Pendergast machine puts him into the Senate. Um, but in 1940, uh, Tom Pendergast is under investigation and I think would eventually be convicted for tax evasion. And so, Whoa, uh, I mean, Truman, back when that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Truman needs help and he goes to another party boss. And here's my relation to the story. Uh, that party boss would be uh, Robert Hannigan in St. Louis, who also happens to be my great-grandfather, and uh, Robert Hannigan helps Truman get over at the finish line, win the primary against, you know, another former Pendergast uh, protege uh, by, like, a point or less, and then win, you know, the general election against the Republican by around a point in a Democratic state. And... Um, uh, yeah, Truman wins a tough, you know, uh, Senate re-election fight then in 1940. Um, he is initially, you know, ridiculed on the Senate floor as the senator from Pendergast. Like, that's how much he's kind of known as the machine politician, you know, just the yeah. hack, like uh, an empty an empty suit. Um well, that, as we discussed, I think one of the funniest stories we had about Truman, too, that kind of explains his power at the time, is that he just desperately, more than anything, wants to have a phone call with FDR. Yeah. And FDR won't even talk to him on the phone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, because Truman is voting, you know, for all the, you know, New Deal legislation. Um, he just, yeah, is getting, he's not getting any meetings with FDR. He's writing him letters, but, you know, nothing. Like, he's not famous. He's a backbencher in uh, Congress. Yeah, and I think probably from FDR's perspective, like, if I want something from Truman, like, I'll call Pendergast, right, to get it. Right? For you sure. Know, yeah. You know. But eventually, Truman makes a name for himself uh, by starting up something called the Truman Committee, which is basically a committee focusing on, you know, investigating waste and corruption in the military during, uh, you know, the World War II mobilization effort. You know, we're spending uh, a lot of money and, uh, you know, using a lot of uh, raw materials, building a lot of weapons. And so, uh, you know, Truman kind of goes around to military bases, uh, checks if the soldiers are slacking off, investigates, you know, line items on uh, budgets if we're, you know, using all the steel we bought, like things like that. And um, for some reason that I can't comprehend, given my experience in our current like political moment, uh, you know, that catches on the papers cover it a lot and uh (laughs) he becomes fairly well known because of that it's it's hard to imagine (laughs) it's giving it's giving uh mcdonald's regional manager vibes coming in Mm. and like you know (laughs) oh yeah micromanaging and inspecting everything like real middle manager type energy and again i mean this is something that we'll get to towards the end of this episode but uh there was a time in american history where uh military waste uh, was considered an actual problem and this idea that the military could just do whatever it wants and spend whatever it wants was not a widely held belief of americans in 19 you know 41 right uh so yeah i mean this this you know it it kind of gives them a little bit of name recognition yeah yeah and so um by the time of the convention in 1944 insiders at least insiders knew that fdr was going to die very soon he was in very poor health like you weren't seeing him uh in person at many events and so people knew insiders at least knew that the candidate chosen as vice president at the convention would be very shortly the next president of the united states and so the democratic party bosses including my great grandfather, um, you know, regional power players, dispensers of patronage in negotiation with business had made a decision. Henry Wallace has to come off the ticket. Yeah. And this decision, I mean, we'll get into this a little bit later, but uh, it's definitely in 44 at his uh, state of the union, Roosevelt gives his uh, new economic freedoms speech where he talks about how, like, we need a new economic bill of rights, you know, where people are like free from hunger <laughs> yeah. and free. From... And uh, let's just say this lights a little bit of a fire under business that this has to be stopped now. For sure. And so before the convention and keep in mind, I'm not a giant FDR head and it's very hard to track like, what FDR's like motivation in all mm-hmm. of this is, like his reasoning behind doing all this, 
it's probably best just to take like a materialist, you know, view and just say like, you know, the capital was flexing at the time. <laughs> capital is kind of feeling its power and wants to mm-hmm. uh, kind of put a stop to some of this uh, <laughs> New Deal legislation. So FDR, <laughs> uh, before the convention, would send Wallace out to Manchuria and Siberia on a tour <laughs> while the Democratic Party bosses just plot behind his back the whole time. It, this is where I have to say, listeners, we're going to put links to it, but you have to go back and listen to our episode where we spend two hours talking about this convention because it is comic hilarity. Like, I mean, he literally sends him to Siberia to get rid of him. The joke that you make about like yeah. a politician being put out to pasture. Like, <laughs> like he was but, actually put out to pasture. <laughs> yeah, they literally like send him to like measure snow levels and shit. Like report back on snow levels in Siberia. We're all very curious. Yeah, we need the VP specifically to do this. <laughs> yeah, and Wallace does it. That's the funny part. I mean, he actually does like send reports back, including uh, a hilarious report about China, where he's like, you know, he's like looking at this war with uh, China and Japan. Like, uh, I kind of think the Chinese nationalists we're backing aren't going to make it. I think the Chinese communists are going to win. <laughs> and, like, and Roosevelt's of course like, yeah, whatever, in the trash. Right? <laughs> right, didn't even read it. Just threw it right in the fucking trash. Like, can you believe it? He's sending back reports. He's know? actually he's actually doing this shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but really hilarious stuff. Yeah. And so the party bosses posed the candidacy of one uh Burns, who's a segregationist, an enemy to labor. Um, but behind the scenes. They know the powerful, you know, CIO, the forces of labor will never tolerate Burns. So they consider O'Douglas um, a Supreme Court justice who's a more palatable version of Wallace to the urban elite. Think of him as like an Elizabeth Warren type. Yeah. But they eventually settle on one candidate, an otherwise unremarkable man without many concrete political beliefs who was put into power by the Pendergast machine in Missouri. <laughs> Would that yeah. be? That'd be Harry S. Truman. Yeah. A guy known for, like, yeah, again, not having much of a personality, not much of, uh, in the way, political beliefs. But I think, critically, uh, was a loyalist to, like, the Pendergast. Like, when, when you know, Pendergast was sent up for tax evasion... Like Truman didn't back away from him or put like distance between him or anything like that. When people would accuse him of being like a machine politician, he would he wouldn't like try and deny it or anything. So I mean, he's he's a real you know he's a loyalist basically. He is. He's not purely an opportunist. Like yeah. uh, when other people smartly you know abandoned the Pendergast machine, he did not really distance himself. Yeah, yeah, and he's not a guy with a, a shit ton of ambition, which guys like James Burns and stuff definitely had. Uh, Truman's just a just a guy, you know, who's just happy to have a job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, he becomes a politician because he failed at uh, business. I guess that's like a common refrain, but that that definitely yeah. is true. <laughs> yeah, he wanted more stable work. And, yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> Speaking of his ambition, there's a point where he's he's a judge in Missouri, uh, and he you know sitting on a very important elected judge position, and he goes to Pendergrass and is like, hey, you know, a Senate position or something like that was opening up, and he's like, hey, do you think maybe I could do that? Like trying to kind of move up the ladder a little bit, and Pendergrass is like, 
just laughs at him. It's like, uh, no, I don't think so. And then Truman, <laughs> in his own writing, is like, oh, it's fine to be a judge. Like, it's good pay. Like, I'll just be a judge. Yeah, forever. you know. <laughs> judge and retire. Like, so this is the level of ambition this man has. The... He one time wanted to move up, and somebody's like, mm, I don't think so. And he's like, okay. <laughs> he's like, fine. No yeah. worries, you know? That's cool. Yeah, no, I nice like where Nice benefits, I'm at. <laughs> yeah. you know? It's nice stable income. <laughs> like, somehow they, like, really just, like, force, like, the least, like, ambitious, like, most just, like, <laughs> whole person into the highest, one of the highest offices in the U.S. Yeah. At that, the most critical time know, in world history. <laughs> extremely critical time. Uh, I mean, like, you got you to hand it to Capitol. That is a funny bit. You know, yeah. like, like, you know, um, for for like maybe the benefit of the world, the for the people of the United States and like, you know, our foreign relations and like the implications in the future, really awful. But the comedic timing, you got to yeah. you got to hand it to him. <laughs> So, so Justin, what happens at the convention? Uh, like I said, this is just a shit show beginning to end. But what happens at the convention? Yeah, so the the nineteen forty four convention is in uh, Chicago in a uh, stadium, and it starts off with uh, basically just like pandemonium. So Robert Hannigan, uh, party boss and uh, chair of the DNC, is touting a letter that says that FDR would be okay with Truman as the VP. Uh, you know, he's talking this letter up to anybody that that can hear it. You know, not necessarily showing it to them, but saying it's going to be released. <laughs> some... Just saying, trust me, bro. Yeah, trust me. Uh, Pump and Wallace... dump scheme energy right here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Wallace has returned, and so his supporters are at this uh, convention in force. Uh, there's various theories about why, but uh, the stadium is overflowing uh, with basically, you know, double its capacity. I forget it's, if it's like, uh, you know, 50,000 people in a 25,000 seat stadium, but something like that, if that's not the exact amount. Mm -hmm. And um you know, Henry Wallace, uh, towards the end of the day, uh, he's introduced to his theme song, which I believe is called Where the Tall Corn Grows. Yeah, I mean, literally like uh, WWF style, like where the tall corn grows starts playing and Wallace is like coming down dun, dun, the dun, line to the aisle. Oh my God, yeah, it's Henry Wallace. Yeah, and the crowd's going nuts, you know, because they yeah. think Wallace yeah. is retired from the ring, but he's back. Yeah, he's know? back. <laughs> so Wallace gives an epic speech and after he speaks... There is a stampede. His supporters rush the floor, attempting to motion right then and there to get Wallace nominated as the vice president. And, you know, the chair of the convention at the time aligned with Hannigan and, you know, other, you know, establishment forces is able to gavel out the convention for the day. Uh, you know, before that motion you know, <laughs> can be achieved. And um, this gives the party bosses time to wheel and deal all through the night, you know, promising people posts in the administration, etc. And the next day, the party bosses and capital get their wish, and Harry Truman is nominated 
as vice president. Yeah, they basically get the mayor of Chicago, who's a daily at the time, uh, to ban. Uh, they they line the convention center with uh, Chicago cops, and then basically tell the cops like, "Don't let any Wallace supporters <laughs> to you know try and control the vote at the convention." Uh, hilariously, I, it's uh, you know some Democratic Party mucky muck named Samuel Jackson is the guy at the podium when they're like trying to like stampede to get Wallace nominated because if they can yell it out into the microphone, the rules of the convention is essentially they have to let it happen. Yeah, and uh, I believe uh, Hannigan at all. I believe they cut the mic to Samuel <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson to Samuel Jackson. <laughs> Definitely not Samuel L. Jackson, but they cut the mic to Samuel Jackson and like go up and like gavel it dead. I mean again hilarious every step of this convention is funny as hell yeah i know there's uh in in oregon playing and uh you know when everybody's (laughs) getting all hyped up during the stampede and they're like stop that oregon yeah yeah they're yelling because yeah the oregon's playing where the tall corn grows which is just getting every way too hyped it's it's like travis scott in there like people are jumping off the rafters and and they're just screaming stop that organ stop that organ and this could have been this could have been the 2020 dnc you know yeah yeah this was this was similar to the uh yeah the when the dnc met in nevada and uh bernie supporters fired dildos at the uh hillary supporters out of a cannon or whatever they whatever bullshit story they all believed (laughs) i can't believe that that was a real like um like a real like narrative that people were running with (laughs) as it came out of my mouth i can hardly believe that this is a real i'm like did this really happen and i had to remind myself yes it did yes this is a story they decided to run with so <laughs> Truman becomes, you know, gets the nomination for VP. Uh, but, you know, Roosevelt, he's uh, he he's going to live forever, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he'd die, uh, what, like months later, six yeah. months, eight months, <laughs> like, after yeah. hell, but not within the year. So this guy yeah. was, like, decaying. Like, this guy was, like, oh, yeah. visibly, like, just almost dead. Yeah, he's in extremely bad shape. And, you know, he has obviously private doctors or whatever, but all the party bosses have access to his private doctors who are basically confirming to them. Uh, yeah, he's he's not not long for this earth. Uh, and he wasn't like really showing up in public that much. Right. So like it was kind of like speculation um, in a way. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways. And you have to remember, this is at a time, not like today, where President Joe Biden not showing up in public is just a sign of his virality and not the fact that he's actually dying. (laughs) Um, You know, know, him not appearing like Roosevelt is a he's not a populist, but he is a very popular figure who is willing to use the public right to help push an agenda through and stuff. So he's a guy who's not he's accustomed to being in the public, right, and to speaking on the radio, making appearances and People have noticed a distinct lack of that, you know, over yeah. the last couple of years now. And to Did be you're... clear, FDR is not at the this uh, DNC. Like, yeah. uh, they basically give a recorded uh, or, you know, piped in. I don't know how exactly it worked, but uh, they give like a recorded or piped in, you know, speech at the convention. He's not there in person. Yeah. And so and this is something the public is not aware of, is that FDR basically is going to die very soon. But certainly the people in charge of the Democratic Party are extremely aware of. Yeah. So, I mean, after FDR dies, uh, you know, Harry Truman in empty suit uh, would take over. And in a similar fashion, 
to FDR with his, uh, you know, New Deal, you know, alphabet government agencies, uh, Harry Truman thinks, what if we make some new agencies, kind of like these domestic agencies, but to help us engage countries overseas? <laughs> and so Truman's administration would begin establishing a new generation of alphabet agencies in support of the U.S. international security state, unaccountable to any democratic input. You might have heard of some of them, the DOD, the NSC, and notably a little agency known as the CIA. Oh. Yeah, the one that our podcast is funded. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but kind of hilarious that you have uh, an equal but opposite growth of these type of agencies under Truman where it's like <laughs> what if they're all horrifying security parts of the security state apparatus you know what if the new deal but terrifying it's <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, pretty much that <laughs> okay so that was a shit show of a convention it seems like looney tune style almost like you know uh, you know like running into like walls that are painted as a uh, tunnels uh <laughs> people like bringing out hooks to like just bring people off of stages like hooking by the neck to like bring them off of stages really crazy <laughs> and, crick, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. and, and you know um so when like truman basically got like forced into office there was what like wasn't there like uh like five votes or something that were taken before like he actually got passed yeah 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 it takes multiple votes and you know again i mean depending on what level of uh conspiracy theory you want to believe about the 44 convention you know uh were they fully counting all the votes whatever i mean part of it is that he has to get a certain percentage of the vote to become the nominee yeah, uh, which they're able to control just by keeping the Wallace people out of the convention itself, right? They just and, lock the Wallace people yeah. out of the convention. Yeah, and then they tell a bunch of other people who they think might be prone to vote for Wallace. They basically tell them like, "Hey, look, we all know Wallace is going to win, but maybe in this first vote, it's important, you know, for your state to vote for like a favorite son, exactly, you know, yeah. of your state, right?" So they convince them to like throw away their Wallace vote on the first ballot, you know, yeah. essentially, and like it's. Like we are only scratching the surface of how ridiculous this convention you was. Got, you guys got to listen to that yeah. like episode to really like dive deep into it. It is it is a wild wild ride. So <laughs> yeah. you're only getting a little taste. The first hit is free, folks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so okay, let's 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 go into uh, Truman in office. So. When Truman actually gets into office, President Truman, mm -hmm. what does his presidency look like? Yeah, I mean, as we talked about before, you know, New Dealers in the Roosevelt cabinet, as well as in these New Deal administrations, have been getting replaced since approximately like 1941-42, right? He'd been replacing them with business leaders and things like that. Truman's just going to hyper-charge you know, that and just, you know, really go forward with continuing that great replacement if you will <laughs> um you know the big one is like i said fdr in 44 at the state of the union he proposes this economic bill of rights and let me just read some of this to y'all uh so he says uh 
you know, every American, regardless of station, race, or creed, has a right to employment and a living wage, food, clothing, and leisure, housing, medical care, social security, education, and freedom from unfair competition and monopoly. Uh, one of the biggest things about the Truman admin is this discussion of the Economic Bill of Rights never comes up again. <laughs> like, yeah. It is now yeah. dead to history. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and I think that this is an interesting point because what FDR proposed right there is actually very is a very different paradigm from I think what America in general, well, what America in general was used to when they talk about freedom. Grandin's notion of the American idea of freedom was being freedom from restraint. Freedom from intervention in business and in commerce. Freedom to really just do whatever the fuck you want when you own capital. Freedom to own private property. Mm -hmm. That was like the American idea of freedom really just from its conception. And so FDR proposing basically saying, expanding that scope of freedom, not necessarily saying that, oh, you can't own private property, right? It was still, you know, within that capitalist, you know, mode of ideas, but it's like, the idea of freedom then will go into the social realm, which is very new. So it's actually a social contract of freedom to have, uh, you know, public education, freedom for like, you know, an actual living wage, like that's freedom, right? Like, uh, like medical care, social security, that is a completely almost like antagonistic idea of the Mm -hmm. uh, kind of freedom that we saw from, you know, the past U.S. presidents, as well as just like how the U.S. understood what freedom was meant to be. And so bringing the idea of freedom from the property owners realm to the, you know, non-property class to a actual social um, idea was something that I think uh, was pretty groundbreaking at the time and like a different way to think about freedom in the U.S. that I think at the highest level was not really seen before um, FDR was uh, promoting that. And I think that that is also indicative of just like where labor was, where uh, the Communist mm-hmm. Party was, and like where the general population of the U.S. Um, was at that time where there was actually that much sentiment and power for this to be brought forth and basically countered. Um, so it is as at the time it was actually very novel and new and kind of like a groundbreaking idea to bring uh, freedom into the social realm. Yeah. And to speak to something that Justin had mentioned earlier and what you just, you know, to kind of put a button on what you're saying there, Munia is, you know, when we talk about Roosevelt's administration, the new deal and things like that, what we're actually seeing isn't, uh, you know, the, the, fa- the, uh, the flight and fancy of a single man. What we're seeing is a class conflict being played out on the national scale, right? Where labor is flexing significant power as is capital. And we're having a battle, if we wanted to talk about in religious terms, right? For the soul of America, if we wanted to be dramatic. You know, FDR's Economic Bill of Rights is a direct product of labor's militancy and strength, right? And it represents the ideas of the working class, which is freedom as a social project. Yep. And Truman, you know, the response of putting Truman in charge is the response of the capitalist class who sees freedom as an individual project of, you know, property ownership. And yeah, as Grandin says, freedom from restraint, right? From, the, yeah. the, you know, capital cannot be restrained in what it wants to do or inflict. Right? Yep, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And 
To be fair, I know uh, some Truman stands are probably complaining right now that Truman <laughs> did, in fact, propose a fair deal, not just mm-hmm. a new deal, a fair oh. deal, which did in- which did have some, you know, economic planks uh, included, you know, national health insurance, which is mm-hmm. great, right? But mm-hmm. then Truman says, "Hey, I'm not going to send this any legislation to Congress." At a time where, you know, the presidential office administration has this gigantic staff and each congressman has like two staffers that are answering constituent letters all the time. Uh, so, you know, Truman basically proposes this fair deal, but does nothing to make it happen. And that's kind of, uh, you'll, you'll see that come <laughs> up a few times in the Truman presidency. Yeah. And then again, that speaks to that conflict, right? I mean, Truman, it's not like business, labor's powerful enough, business can't just come in and tell them no, right? Like, they can't do a frontal assault. So, you know, Truman's like saying, oh, no, like, I'm calling it the fair deal, even as like speaking to this New Deal promise. Uh, he just won't fulfill it. He'll do this weird thing that Democrats will never figure out again, which is, uh, promise things during your election and then just never, ever act on them. And then when people ask you about it, put your hands up in the air and say, what can I do? (laughs) 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 Luckily that won't become a trend, but, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, and to speak to this point, I mean, if you go and I encourage listeners to do this, go check out the Republican national platform from the RNC, from the convention in 1952 and read through some of it. The right to a union is, you know, being fundamental to democracy is in the Republican platform in 52, right? Like, labor is strong enough. Politicians have to speak to it on some level. The big thing, though, is how do they act? (laughs) And that gets us to the sort of thing is immediately after the war in 46, there is a massive post-war strike wave. So there had been a general agreement not to go on strike during the war. Now, People still went on strike and things like that. But there was labor agreed to try and quiet down the labor struggle for the war effort. Once the war ends, in 46 alone, over 5 million workers are on strike in various capacities across the United States. A quarter million auto workers go on strike in 1946. I mean, it is a massive strike wave. Uh, And the response for that is going to be the Taft-Hartley Act, which comes about in 1947. It's crafted by our, uh, by, you know, friend of the show, the uh, National Association of Manufacturers, the NAM, uh, and then handed over to Congress, (laughs) who then immediately passes it. Uh, Truman interestingly vetoes it, but only because there's, I think, an overwhelming uh, majority of uh, uh, House and Senate members who are willing to vote for it to override the veto, but, you know, it does a sort of symbolic veto. Uh, well, and but- Truman kind of sets the stage for this, mm-hmm. you know, hostile, you know, labor environment by like going so hard against, you know, the 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 railway strikes of uh, 1946, like threatening to draft like striking workers into the army and wanting to, you know, nationalize the railways, take it over just because uh, he doesn't want to deal with these striking workers. Yeah, I mean, Truman is uh, repeatedly, aggressively anti-union. And, you know, the Taft-Hartley Act, it essentially controls who can negotiate for a union contract, uh, essentially forcing people to take loyalty oaths, right? So 
if you are a suspected communist or socialist, you are not you cannot negotiate a labor contract after the passage of Taft Hartley. It basically it it puts forward right to work laws, things like that, allows for the uh, passing of right to work laws. It essentially is a giant broadside against labor. Uh, John L. Lewis, who at the time we talked about him during the Depression episode, uh, he's from the United Mine Workers, and he's the head of the CIO at the time. And you know his quote on it was that this was the first ugly stab of fascism in America, right? It's Taft Hartley uh, to give you an idea of how labor viewed it. <laughs> um, huh. It was a pretty serious uh, attack on labor. And I think if you were going to write a labor history of the modern era and like why the U.S. is so anti-union and why the labor movement is so weak in the United States, uh, day one is Taft Hartley, right? That that's the starting point, and you go from there. Um, but yeah, you know, again, you know, Justin had mentioned, you know, sort of Truman's threats and things like that. Uh, in 1950, he does pass an executive order to nationalize the rail lines and bring them under the control of the U S military. Although he doesn't hey, act on it. You know, I, I have it in my notes. That's 1946. Is it 46? Yeah. We can just edit that out too. Cause the big one is this guy right here, which is 52. But yeah, so I mean, to get to this point of, you know, Truman's sort of threats against labor in 52, he does threaten primarily steel workers, but also rail workers who are on strike uh, that basically he's going to draft them into the military. Now, the important part about this in 52 is this is the exact moment the U.S. is losing in Korea. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Korean War is a horrifying you know, prospect to be drafted into. Uh, it is essentially a death sentence to go die cold and alone in a place you've never heard of for a goal that nobody can explain to you. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's that's a pretty insane thing to do, is to basically tell striking workers, like, no, I'm going to specifically draft you into the military uh, to go fight in a, like, charnel house I'm creating in Korea. Uh, if you continue the strike and it speaks to let's just say the changing position of the executive on labor at the time yeah totally um well that is pretty horrifying that he uh did that draft and <laughs> basically it was like the biggest i won't i don't want to say the biggest like strike busting but it is certainly an extreme measure to bust a strike to threaten to draft workers into the military um, well, I mean, during a <laughs> during a horrifying war i mean that's that's the key point like this isn't like during peacetime this is like yeah during a war the u.s is at the at that moment currently like losing too <laughs> like, yeah. yeah i mean we, we still got to give reagan this credit but yeah yeah the patco strike <laughs> is a real that's a piece of yeah, art to be honest yeah, but, exactly yeah. the only union that supported reagan too by the way which is hilarious the only union <laughs> that endorsed reagan and reagan little and immediately turned around and fucked them which you know well sorry yeah yeah, kind of on the patco leadership there get better leadership guys yeah (laughs) yeah all right well you know hey at least truman was able to get some stuff done that's what really matters right is to get stuff done um (laughs) and his legacy that he created uh, really forms out of the little agency that we all know and love, the Central Intelligence Agency, <laughs> a.k.a. the CIA. <laughs> Truman's yeah. creation. 
I mean, people talk a lot of shit about the CIA, but, you know, if we didn't have the CIA, we wouldn't have gotten Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Kevin Hart's movie Central Intelligence. So, <laughs> you know, look, you think take, about take the that good one. with the bad, all right? Yeah. <laughs> but we may not have we gotten, wouldn't have the, gotten the Showtime show Homeland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we might not have gotten Joshua for Congress. Exactly, exactly. What would, what would Joshua Congress run on if it weren't for the CIA? Um, but yeah, I mean, the CIA is such a like fascinating agency because it, it speaks so much to this time, right? This idea of this class struggle at the time, which it's kind of accepted. Um, it, it's accepted at the time that the State Department is just overrun with commies or whatever. This will come up when we talk about McCarthyism. Uh, this is the accepted wisdom of the time. And so essentially the capitalist class literally says we should have our own version of the State Department. We should have our own foreign policy wing within the U.S. government. And that is what the CIA is. I mean, it is to the point that it is a joke that they only recruit from Harvard and Yale, right? That it's completely filled with corporate lawyers, the Dulles brothers uh, being the, uh, you know, the first heads of the CIA, but being the quintessential example, the two corporate lawyers for United Fruit Company, the company mm-hmm. that comes to symbolize like American imperialism, yeah, you know, like in the, the, world. the emblem of neocolonialism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it, and so I, I found this article, this from the just randomly found this uh, from the New York Times from 1986 about campus recruiting in the CIA. And again, this is 1986. So this is, you know, four decades later. The whole premise of the article is like, hey, the CIA, they don't just go to Harvard and Yale anymore. <laughs> Sometimes they recruit at Johns Hopkins. Right? Like, cool. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and the whole thing is like, family don't have to be you know, a uh, science of capital dating back to the Mayflower. Uh, you could be recently rich as well and also yeah. get a job at the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> CIA a- is going for the nouveau riche now. That's that's amazing. It's inspiring. Yeah, maybe Gatsby could be in the CIA. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I, and I think, you know, for all the criticism well-deserved of the CIA, uh, one of the things that does get left out is this class element that it, they are very specifically creating a capitalist class, like foreign policy arm of the U S government. And also they're continuing this trend that we see from the progressive era of pulling what should be, you know, pulling important aspects of American empire and imperialism out of the democratic sphere and pulling it into unaccountable agencies that are either you know, directly part of the state itself or are part of the like think tank, you know, uh, complex that surrounds DC. Yeah. Basically this is like a continuation of the project of just stripping democratic institutions away into a completely undemocratic institution. There's nothing that you can do to basically change what the CIA does as like a average person. You can't, you don't vote for the CIA, right? (laughs) Like, you know, these institutions just kind of operate how they, how they do. Right. And that, that is go back to our progressive episodes. If you haven't listened to those, cause that is a, that's a continuation of an ongoing and deliberate project that was happening. And, And to be fair, I mean, the CIA, much like things like the department of Homeland security or ice, et cetera, 
it's not particularly popular amongst the American public. Like in the seventies, there was a huge push to like get rid of and disband the CIA. Yeah. I think around the time of the torch revelations of the torture program, similar sort of, you know, demands. I don't know that even in a good year, the CIA meets like a high approval amongst the American population. Yet everybody just puts their hands up in the air and says, well, what can we do? We've always had it. Just like the Department of Homeland Security. It's always yeah. been there. Yeah, to yeah. Get, to get rid of a, a venerated old institution, you know, how can we do such a thing? Yeah, right. So the CIA, not the most popular institution, but a very consequential one. What happened in Western Europe after the war now that it was in the warm embrace of the United States? <laughs> exactly, right? Um, well, with the defeat of Nazi Germany, the U.S. and Britain immediately had what we could call buyer's remorse. <laughs> Churchill immediately proposes Operation Unthinkable to his American counterparts, a plan that involved rearming a Nazi military and using them to reinvade the Soviet Union. Uh, General George Patton, who had been put in charge of the occupation of the American zone in Germany, accidentally reveals to reporters uh, the prevalence of these plans amongst the high brass in the, in the military uh, when he tells them that, hey, uh, I could rearm divisions of the Waffen SS and incorporate them into my third army. He then tells them, quote, what do you care what those goddamn bullshies think? We're going to have to fight them sooner or later. We can do it with my Germans. They hate those red bastards, right? Uh, which the press corps reports on this appro- you know, appropriately horrified. It eventually leads to uh, Truman having to sanction Patton a little bit for this. But the point is, is a lot of people in the U.S. are starting to ask the question, did we fight for the wrong side in World War II? So... The fate of Germany, it's to be decided at the Potsdam Conference, which is supposed to begin in the spring of 1945. Uh, having been filled in on the details, though, of the Manhattan Project, Truman immediately begins delaying the conference for as long as he can. Uh, Secretary of State James Burns, a guy who came up, the first choice to be he's back. Roosevelt's VP, who, by the way, the reason why they end up not choosing to go against him is that he's just too vocal a proponent of lynching in the American South. <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> no, we can't, no, we can't have a guy who won't stop talking about how good that. lynching is. <laughs> VP. <laughs> but Secretary of State James Burns, he sums up the new sort of unilateralist position of the Truman admin, uh, stating that the bomb, quote, puts us in a position to dictate our own terms at the end of the war. Atomic scientist Robert Oppenheimer notes that, quote, incredible pressure was then placed on those developing the bomb to finish the project by the time of the Potsdam conference. So Truman essentially is dragging out this conference to try and get the bomb developed and dropped, right? More on that later. <laughs> but unfortunately for Truman, uh, the Manhattan Project is running way behind schedule He postpones the conference twice. Stalin finally insists that the big three meet in late July of 1945. As regards Germany, the following decisions are made at Potsdam. One, Nazi war criminals would be rounded up and tried by an international tribunal. Two, Germany would pay reparations to the Soviet Union, 15% of which would go to Poland. And German military industry would be dismantled and shipped to the various homelands of the occupied zones. For instance, Eastern industry to the USSR, industry in the American zone to the US, etc. Germany's new economy would be based on agriculture and light industry. 
Three, Germany would be divided into four occupation zones, British, French, American, and Soviet, until such time that denazification was complete and elections would be held to unify the country again. So you're thinking, all right, this all sounds pretty reasonable given Germany's behavior of the last uh, 30 years, right? And the problem with this is that the Truman admin begins violating the Potsdam Agreement immediately. So to start with, only East Germany ever pays reparations to the Soviet Union, and only East Germany ever dismantles its war industry as per the Potsdam Agreement, right? The Nuremberg war crimes trials, you know, which are, are popular, like people in the public want the Nazis to be punished, right? They immediately begin to get dismantled upon their creation. Already by 1947, one year into the trials, U.S. politicians were claiming that the trials aided the communists and were a, quote, red plot to eliminate top German leadership. By April of 1949, the U.S. has dismantled the war crimes tribunal. A year later, a clemency board is set up to pardon convicted Nazi war criminals. By 1958, every war criminal has been released from prison, except for Rudolf Hess, who actually gets convicted not at Nuremberg, but in a separate trial. By the way, this is not happening in the Soviet side. The Soviets actually don't participate in the Nuremberg trials over disagreements over evidence sharing. The U.S. and the West won't share evidence on uh, Nazi criminals with the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union has their own trials, which will say <laughs> we're less lenient. Yeah, <laughs> to, sure. to, to say uh, the least. To say the least, yes. Um, you know, I guess how you feel about Nazis will depend on how you feel about that. Thousands of Nazis were brought into the United States and Canada over the next decade on forged visas from the various branches of the U.S. military and intelligence services. Now, frequently, this is discussed in view of uh, you know, Warner von Braun and his all oh, this was critical to the U.S. weapons project and rocket programs and things like that. But these, we're talking thousands and thousands of people. These new immigrants were everything from German weapons scientists to concentration camp guards, right? And everything in between. Most of which offered little in the way of, I don't know, expertise or anything, but just seemed to be people that the U.S. security agencies liked. It's like, oh yeah, the butcher of Lyon. Yeah, let's keep him. Let's, get, <laughs> let's keep that guy around. He seems cool. We can hang out with him. This was in distinct contradiction to the treatment received by the survivors of Germany's concentration camps at the hands of U.S. forces. General Patton, our friend from earlier, called camp survivors animals and described them as, quote, a subhuman species. They were frequently confined to their former concentration camps, now under new American leadership, while countries debated for years over who would take them in. Patton elected to mix camp survivors with German POWs, whom Patton put in charge of rations and camp discipline with a deadly effect. President Truman's envoy, Earl Harrison, toured the DP camps, these are displaced person camps, in 1945. He reported, quote, We appear to be treating the Jews as the Nazis treated them, except that we do not exterminate them. Truman ordered Eisenhower to improve the conditions of the displaced persons camps, and he passed on the order to Patton. Furious, the four-star general, Ike's successor as military governor, wrote in his diary, quote, Harrison and his ilk believe that the displaced person is a human being, which he is not. And this applies particularly to the Jews who are lower than animals. Now, I know that I brought the podcast down a little bit <laughs> here, but 
this is one of the great crimes of World War II that literally nobody talks about. And I think there's a variety of reasons, but this is maybe one of the last taboos of the Second World War is to talk about what actually happened to camp survivors afterwards, uh, particularly groups that nobody speaks for, like the Romani. But unknown, probably thousands, tens of thousands of people died in the very concentration camp the Germans had put them in under U.S. occupation after the war as they were kept there for five years uh, as the West debated who would take them. The reason why this debate is happening is France refuses to take their Jews back. You know, Germany refuses to take their Jews back, etc., etc., right? The U.S. refuses to take Jews in. Again, in direct contradiction to the fact that the U.S. is taking in thousands and thousands of former Nazi officials, camp guards, etc., no questions asked. I mean, horrifying, horrifying stuff. So, to pivot away from that... As I see my co-hosts slowly putting their gun to their heads. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a bummer, man. What the fuck can you say? Like, it's, yeah. it's horrifying. So finally, fearing the results of any election that the U.S. cannot directly control the outcome of, the U.S. made moves to create an independent West German state in 1948. They began by creating a currency union, the first state to create a new German state in 1948. Uh, precipitating the Berlin blockade and airlift. The U.S. claimed that Soviet claims at the time of the U.S. reconstituting a new, new German state in violation of the Potsdam Agreement was simply paranoia or cynical politicking on the part of Russian uh, leaders. In May of 1949, the U.S. created the German Federal Republic, or FRG, or FDR, or more commonly, as we'll say it, West Germany. So the Soviet Union's just being paranoid. Oh, by the way, several months later, uh, we have a new West German state. <laughs> Given that this was done just weeks after the creation of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, the Soviets began again to protest that the U.S. intended to rearm Germany against the Soviet Union. Again, this was dismissed as paranoia. In May of 1955, the U.S. reconstituted the West German military under the leadership of its former Nazi command and begins to rebuild the German arms industry. West Germany joins NATO that same month, leading to the creation of the Warsaw Pact shortly afterwards. So as for the rest of Europe, the U.S. was clear about its intention to create a bulwark against communism from the beginning. Communist parties, which enjoyed mass support due to their role in defeating fascism, were banned in France and Italy in 1947, Greece in 1948, and Germany in 1956, among others. Much-needed economic aid provided by the U.S. with the Marshall Plan in 1948 came with strings attached that called for the resignation of all public officials belonging to a communist party. The stipulation was particularly aimed at marginalizing the French Communist Party. The aid was designed in such a way to revive European capitalism, giving free money to rebuild factories in which workers labored under brutal wage freezes and extended work weeks. It also tied European industry to the oil market, which the U.S. controlled, as opposed to its previous energy base, which was coal, which was widely abundant in Europe itself. Covert counterinsurgency operations were carried out against Western European communists for decades. In Italy, a campaign of bombings and assassinations began in 1947. The strategy of tension would evolve into Operation Gladio in 1956, eventually spreading to France, Germany, Britain, Denmark, Belgium, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, Austria, Cyprus, Finland, Spain, Sweden, and Switzerland. This operation would not be formally brought to a close until 1990. 
wow, that was in the recent past, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some of us and were I alive mean, then. <laughs> like, just to be clear, like, in a lot of these places, like, communists were set to, like, win, like, actual elections, such as, you know, like, Italy, for example. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it, had there been open elections, communists would have won in most of Western Europe. Uh, France, for sure. Italy, 100% for sure. Which is why the communist parties are all banned in all these places. They're not banned because yeah. they're not popular, right? Yeah, yeah. You uh, don't ban unpopular <laughs> parties yeah. that have no chance of winning, you know? And when we talk about Operation Gladio, the strategy of tension, things like that, what the CIA is doing effectively is, one, assassinating important leaders in these political organizations – but at the same time, just creating a general state of chaos and violence through bombings of public events and things like that, that allows for a state of exception to be taken in most of Western Europe that allows for things like banning the Communist Party. So, you know, the CIA will do a bombing of a public event in uh, Italy, as they did in 1948. And then the Italian you know, prime minister appointed by the United States will step in and say, this is the Communist Party, you know, doing terrorism. We have to shut down elections. You know, uh, it is specifically designed to undercut and break the back of communist support in these countries. In Greece, the war against communism was taken still further. After Axis forces were evicted from Greece by communist-led guerrillas, the British intervened to bring in a right-wing military dictatorship. The British were not shy about their imperial ambitions, and as order to General Scobie, Churchill wrote, quote, Do not hesitate to act as if you are in a conquered city where a local rebellion is in progress. When the people rose up against this dictatorship, a five-year civil war ensued. The British asked the U.S. for aid, and in 1947, 250 military advisors as well as 75,000 tons of military equipment were sent to Greece to tip the balance in the favor of the dictatorship. Truman's appeal for military aid for the Greek dictatorship became known as the, quote, Truman Doctrine. Truman stated, quote, it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting subjugation by armed minorities or outside pressures. The fact that the communists were not in the minority or that the United States and Britain represented the only outside pressures in Greece at the time uh, <laughs> went uncommented in the press. <laughs> In the Eastern Bloc, former Nazi intelligence officer Reinhard Galen worked with the CIA to form the Galen Organization, a stay-behind network, which engaged in a vigorous campaign of terrorism designed to undermine the new communist governments. They did everything from carry out assassinations of local leaders, bomb industry and acts of sabotage, poison the milk of school children. They had a plot to poison a cigarette plant, etc., 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 so basically, the U.S. was doing democracy all over Western Europe <laughs> and Eastern Europe, for that matter. Good times had by all. Wow. That is a pretty big shit show in Europe. But look, that's Europe. Surely and surely the war in the Pacific, divorced from the pitfalls of European politics, had a clear conclusion, right? The U.S. was not just being a cartoon villain. Oh, Mooney, well, sit back and hear a tale. All right. Yeah, you're uh, right. Europe is it has all the pitfalls of like, you know, European struggles over the past, you know, millennia, you know, great power battles, all this kind of stuff. But in the U.S., where they could pretty much rule by themselves in Asia, I'm sure it's going to go totally differently. So let's hear let's hear a tale. Yeah, let's hear it. 
So the Cold War in Asia begins with the American decision to use nuclear weapons against Japan. It's a decision that's fund- that fundamentally shapes how the U.S. is going to view its occupation of Asia for the next three decades. Now, before I had mentioned that Truman had learned of the atomic bomb in the lead up to the Potsdam Conference and immediately began dragging his feet to delay the meeting, well, a similar thing is going to happen with Japan. And here, you guys are just going to have to, you know, uh, give me a little leeway. I'm going to have to kind of read a sequence of events that's important. But okay. the Yalta Conference meets in March of 1945. There, the Soviet Union agrees to fully enter the war against Japan on August 7th. All right. August 7th. This is an important date. In April, American officials confirm via coded Japanese messages that Japanese officials are seeking terms for a surrender. On July 12th, the U.S. intercepts a cable that reveals that the Emperor of Japan has now interceded into the debate and is demanding that political leadership begin the process of surrendering. They make it clear that they are willing to surrender on the condition that the Emperor is not executed. The U.S. learns that if the Soviet Union enters the war against Japan, the country plans to surrender under any condition. By the way, Truman at the time writes in his diary, when the Soviets enter the war, finito Japan. (laughs) During this time, Truman suddenly becomes a real stickler on the emperor issue. Much to the puzzlement of Churchill and his successor, Clement Attlee, and to Stalin, given that the emperor was only a figurehead leader. And this is important. The emperor is not actually running japan in any way it's like the queen of england or something he's just a guy everybody seems really confused about why truman is demanding that nothing you know we can't accept any surrender until they agree that the emperor has to be killed Mm. (laughs) everyone's just kind of like what the fuck (laughs) it sounds like like a child's way of like uh of, of, of viewing it or almost as if you're trying to drag something out (laughs) Another important thing to note is that um, FDR and Stalin had like a pretty good relationship and there was a bit of trust there and Stalin thought it was pretty tragic when FDR died. And so, you know, you have uh, Truman in there and I don't know, like uh, he, he's just not the most uh, effective uh negotiator and uh i don't know yeah it's something maybe worth keeping in mind as these talks play out yeah Yeah, everybody's trying to feel truman out essentially right and i think they're all coming to the conclusion that he's a fucking idiot like but i think that they're maybe mistakenly believing that he's just an idiot and not just somebody who's trying to buy time so when the big three meet at potsdam on july 17th Truman continually sabotages the talks by issuing demands that he knows the Soviet Union will not agree to, again, dragging the conference out for weeks. Finally, on August 6th, that's one day before the magic day, August 7th, the Soviet Union's going to enter the war. On August 6th, one day before the Soviet Union invades Manchuria, Truman tells Stalin to look for news from the, the, the Japanese front. That day, a fission bomb with a uranium core is dropped on Hiroshima, instantly killing 80,000 people, or one-third of the city's population. Three days later, an implosion bomb with a plutonium core was dropped on Nagasaki, killing 60,000 people. Some 140,000 more would later die from injuries and the effects of the two bombs. Three days later, the U.S. accepted the Japanese terms of surrender, identical to the ones that had been discussed back in July. The current Japanese emperor enjoys mountaineering and plays viola 
because he thinks the violin is too individualist of an instrument. So this leads to some real questions, right? This timeline. So why did the U.S. drop the atomic bombs? Well, they're pretty clear in their internal discussions that they did it to intimidate the Soviet Union and reset the post-war relationship. Truman noted in the lead-up to Potsdam that, quote, if the atom bomb explodes, as I think it will, I'll certainly have a hammer on those boys, meaning the Soviets. Secretary of War Henry Stimson tells Roosevelt that the U.S. would not be able to reverse the Soviet advantage at the bargaining table until the bomb had been, quote, laid on Japan. Once Churchill heard of what happened at Hiroshima, he rejoiced, saying, quote, we now had something in our hands which would redress the balance with the Russians. This tied into another important question that too few people ask, which is, why drop the bombs on population centers? The Los Alamos Targeting Committee recommended Kyoto, with Nagasaki as its backup, and Hiroshima as targets, because they still had large population centers whose destruction would create a psychological effect that would make, quote, the initial use of the bomb sufficiently spectacular for the importance of the weapon to be internationally recognized. Many had suggested, including General George Marshall, that the bomb be dropped on an unpopulated island with international observers present. The targeting committee rejected that proposal in order to exploit the psychological effect of destroying a populated city. That would be a uh, war crime, I believe. Yeah, (laughs) that sounds like the definition of one. Yeah, for those counting at home. So why drop two bombs, right? I very specifically mentioned a fission bomb and an implosion-style bomb. Two different styles of bombs were dropped. Well, this was done because the project to build the atomic bomb had been the most vast and expensive government project ever undertaken. The project employed 130,000 people and cost around $4 billion, or $51 billion today, or the cost of one F-35 fighter crashing into an aircraft carrier and sinking to the bottom of the South China Sea. A huge amount of war resources were channeled to the bomb, which had priority status over all other operations in the war. The sheer size and nature of the project already made the use of the bomb a necessity for those in charge of the project. Careers were going to be built or lost over the success of this project. Two types of bombs had been developed, so two types of bombs had to be used. The sheer momentum of the project pushed for the bomb to be used during the war. So finally... Why was the dropping of the bomb considered acceptable, right? Again, another question that too few people ask. And this comes down to a couple of things, but one of which is very important, which is the extraordinary racism of America's campaign in the Pacific. Asians were considered to be subhuman. Prisoners were rarely taken in the war. And soldiers made souvenirs out of their enemies' corpses. This morbid practice was so common that FDR himself had a letter opener made out of the femur of a Japanese soldier. The U.S. Army at one point eventually has to tell its soldiers, the Marines specifically have to be told to stop sending back the body parts of Japanese soldiers back home. That's starting to freak people out. Still, once news of the reality of using nuclear weapons was made public in John Hershey's 1946 article, Hiroshima, the public recoiled at the weapon's use and effects. The government responded two months later with an article written by Henry Stimson and McGeorge Bundy, that weaved a narrative out of whole cloth about how the bomb was needed to prevent a land invasion that would cost, quote, one million lives. Their internal notes from drafting the article revealed that the story was entirely fictional, 
but is now the official narrative regarding the use of the weapon. In 1947, Bundy would brag to Stimson, quote, I think we deserve some sort of medal for reducing these chatterers to silence. So, with America receiving Japan's surrender, the U.S. was able to appoint itself the sole occupier of Japan, immediately turning it into an American colony under the rule of General Douglas MacArthur. At the Moscow Conference in late 1945, Korea was divided a la Germany into an American sphere and a Soviet sphere, with a plan to reunite the country via elections in 1950. The U.S. reconstituted the Japanese occupational forces on the peninsula and immediately scrapped any plans for any elections, much less for reunification. It was around the time of the Moscow Conference that Truman and Churchill-slash-Atlee negotiated the fate of Vietnam. U.S. forces would assist the reinsertion of French colonial forces into the country. This would mark the beginning of America's 30-year war against the people of Indochina. So good things happening in the East as well. Jeez. That is horrifying. Like, I mean, even knowing those facts before is just to hear those just redescribed really just like sends like a chill down my spine. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting the level of sort of post facto glorification of World War Two, And it makes sense on one level because for the U.S., it's one of the few wars where the U.S. was on the side of unambiguous good right in the sense that we were fighting not the nazis and uh the japanese war machine but then you go and see what the u.s actually did (laughs) and it seems to be a pretty unambiguous evil for the most part uh across yeah you know europe it's important that um you know japan was gonna surrender like once uh you know the soviet union you know landed and so uh, we dropped the bomb before or like as they land, like we did not need to do that. Like this, yeah. this thing was over. Yeah. And it, it's, I mean, honestly, all the way back in July of 45, had we actually negotiated with the Japanese, we probably could have organized a surrender in July, even before the Soviet invasion. Right. They wanted to surrender. Right. And it's Truman's refusal to even like allow negotiation with them because everybody's agreed that you know amongst the allied powers if the if we negotiate a surrender we negotiate together and truman is single-handedly tanking that negotiation and it's one of those things that it, an indescribable evil when you think about the amount of people who died not just from the atomic bombs but from the continual bombing of japan itself right the people who are continuing to die in china fighting the japanese army in china like it is a horrifying evil committed by the united states for the sole purpose of being able to use nuclear weapons against a civilian population, right? Which is the whole reason why they're doing this. And it's, I don't know, pretty unspeakable, but don't worry. It only is going to set how the U.S. deals with Asia for the next, like, 40 years. Uh, Yeah, well, speaking of that, that actually brings us to Korea and the Korean War, which was a massive war that killed millions And that was actually endorsed by the United Nations that had been created five years prior to prevent exactly this. So what led to the Korean War? Yeah, and we have a whole episode on the Korean War, which, again, is one of those things that there's so many ins and outs of it. They should definitely check out. But the the long of the short of it is that it is going to be a situation that looks a lot like Germany, but with a couple of key differences, which is 
the U.S. reconstitutes the Japanese occupation of Korea. It brings in Japanese advisors to work as the Korean uh, South Korean constabulary, meaning police forces in South Korea. It appoints a guy named Sigmund Rhee, who is, uh, by the CIA's own admission, a fucking idiot and a violent fascist. But, you know, will do what the U.S. wants him to do as the leader of South Korea. The U.S. immediately, again, against the Moscow Agreement, begins constituting a South Korean state, which was not the agreement. The agreement was to vote on a unified Korea, but the U.S. knows it's going to lose that election. So it says no (laughs) to that. Now, the key difference is the people that constitute the North Korean army and what will become South Korean guerrillas have been fighting a war against Japan dating back to 1910. Now, when Japan invades China, a lot of those people, including the bulk of the North Korean military, are in China, in the north of China, fighting the Japanese occupation. They've been fighting wars for decades. The people who are put in charge of South Korea, including the constabulary, the Japanese forces, as well as guys like Sigmund Rhee and stuff, are the forces of occupation of Korea that Japanese have put in place. So when North Korea is looking across the border at South Korea and vice versa, these are not two countries looking at each other and saying, hmm, those are some guys I would like to fight. These are two people looking at each other saying, we've been fighting a war against one another for 30 years. These guys had been killing each other like the previous year, (laughs) right? Mm. Prior to the occupation. And for them, the Korean War um, again, on both sides in the South and the North, is just a continuation of this war, right? It's not a new chapter, but just a continuation of this ongoing war that's been going on, like I said, since 1910. Now, up to 1949, there is continual incursions from both sides, South Korean military going into North Korea, uh, across 38th parallel, North Korea going into South Korea, etc. There's continual incursions. Sigmund Rhee at one point is telling the press, yeah, I'm sending soldiers across the border to try and get the North to invade as a precept for war with North Korea. The CIA hilariously uh, forces Sigmund Rhee to disappear from the press for a month after he says that. (laughs) And I think sit him down in a house somewhere and try to explain to him that he's going to end up in a fucking ditch if he doesn't shut the fuck up. But eventually North Korea does invade South Korea right now. When I say that I'm using the U.S. sort of view of this essentially korea invades korea is the story here the south korean government collapses immediately because it is an imperial puppet state uh the vast majority of the south korean population is siding with the north on this there is a guerrilla war being fought vigorously in the south uh the u.s gets pushed off the korean peninsula then do a new landing at Incheon, push into the north and engage in a campaign of uh, ethnic cleansing across the Korean Peninsula, where they open up concentration camps, kill hundreds of thousands of Koreans in concentration camps. And by concentration camps, I do mean in the German sense, where they literally work people to death, uh, not feeding them and things like that. Political prisoners are rounded up and killed in mass. Mass graves are dug everywhere. And Pyongyang, after the U.S. takes Pyongyang, They fill the air raid shelters in Pyongyang with the corpses of civilians that they have on kill lists. 
Uh, the U.S. passes an order to kill all uh, members of the North Korean Communist Party, uh, which, to give you an idea, is one third of the population of North Korea at the time, which they eventually do. They, they accomplish this goal of killing one third of North Korea's population. The U.S. Uh, engages in a horrifying air war where they bomb South Korea as much as North Korea, just to point out that this is a war against Korea, not against one side of the thing. They kill one out of three people in North Korea and one out of eight people living in South Korea at the time. Total war deaths are somewhere in the three to four million range. It is an unambiguous evil and genocide on the part of the United States that then leads to the settlement of just continuing the pre-1950 arrangement of a South Korea and North Korea artificially divided and under two different states. Yeah. And so, like, I, I don't know. I like. I feel like a lot of the reason they can get away with this is because it's on the heels of, like, you know, the good war, like mm-hmm. World, World War II. Like, uh, you know, the generals at this point are extremely popular. Like, uh, you know, MacArthur uh, is basically, like, ruling over Japan. People think that's fine. He oversees... Um, a lot, a lot of this uh, a Korean War until uh, Truman gets rid of him, and then we would see, you know, Eisenhower, you know, former general, uh, win the presidency of, you know, nineteen fifty two, and so mm-hmm. I don't know, like we have this situation where, you know, our the U.S. war, the U.S. role in in these wars is is kind of glorified and. We participate in this unambiguously like good war, although even even that is uh, <laughs> we do terrible things in that. But um, there is like uh, public credulity in you know our p- participation in this, mm. and uh, you know our uh, yeah, we definitely take advantage of this. Uh, you know our our military. Yeah, I mean, there's belief in the military, this belief or, yeah. you know, this buy in on the institution of the military, right? Uh, for, you know, a lot of good reasons. Now, one of the interesting things about the early stages of the Korean War is that, specifically in the Pacific, the U.S. decides that a lot of soldiers that had actually fought in World War II, because World War II is a radicalizing moment for a lot of U.S. soldiers, particularly uh, in Europe, that these soldiers have become suspect, right? That. They, they're siding too much with, you know, the idea of leniency and that this was a war against fascism and are not understanding their occupational role appropriately. And so one of the things the U.S. does is it cycles a lot of the soldiers that have actual fighting experience out of these theaters and back to the United States and then cycles in new recruits as quickly as it can. So it's just bringing in draftees into Korea, which this is going to be a real problem when you're going up against an army that's been fighting for decades and is pretty legendary at the time for fighting skills and prowess. Right. And this kind of gets to a couple of points, which is a common theme you're going to hear is that the U S military is very ineffective on the ground in the post-war period and loses pretty much every war it fights on the ground. And the only thing it's really good at is just bombing the shit out of things which is essentially what the U.S. just does in Korea, which is bomb the shit out of everything. Um, yeah, like after the Incheon landing, like they lose fight after fight is my understanding. Yeah, yeah after Incheon, they're able to push to Pyongyang and then the Chinese Red Army enters, right? Uh, the war, so a part that I left out. But 
Uh, the Chinese Red Army obviously has very deep connections with the Korean you know, military in the north. They entered the war and shoved the U.S. back across the 38th parallel. And now there's a negotiation. At this point, Truman decides, actually, MacArthur's been talking about going nuclear in this war and bombing the hell out of North Korea. He has a plan to drop like 100 nuclear weapons across the division between North and South Korea and turn it into essentially a irradiated forbidden zone. Truman at this time actually authorizes the use of nuclear weapons in Korea, but he does it at the exact same time that he fires MacArthur. And MacArthur is like causing such chaos on his way out that the generals actually don't know that they have full authorization to use nuclear weapons. And by the way, what I mean, he authorizes the use. I mean, he signs them over to the U.S. military, meaning they can use the weapons at will. I think he signs over eight nuclear weapons to the U.S. military to use at will. And they just, in the chaos, don't do it. And, you know, a month later, Truman thinks better of it and, and takes the weapons back. But, I mean, they were going to drop nuclear weapons on North Korea and China, which, of course, would have launched a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union right at that moment. So Truman did try to end the world, basically, <laughs> as, as best he could, and just didn't succeed because of the incompetence uh, in the American military structure at the time. But, yeah, it's it's... The war itself is a horrifying event for U.S. soldiers. Like in McCullough, he talks about retreating U.S. soldiers just shitting as they walk. Like, you know, cover. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, like every soldier coming back is talking about what a horrifying event this was. I mean, to your point about like how this war could happen or be accepted. Part of it is that nobody in America knows where Korea is on a map, much less anything about it. But the second they start to hear stories back, none of the stories are good. And I think a little bit of panic sets in publicly that this is that something very bad is happening on the Korean Peninsula. I this honestly is part of why Eisenhower is able to come into office is that he runs on I'm going to set things straight in Korea. Like the Democrats have fucked it up and I'm going to set things straight. And, you know, it's 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 a horrifying moment. Now. Interestingly, I mean, this is just sort of a point of imperial sort of politics, but uh, we mentioned that the UN had been created five years prior, hilariously to avoid this exact thing from happening, at least, you know, in story. That's why it was created. But there's a security council in the UN, which you might remember from school, that has five permanent seats. Hmm. One to the United States, one to Britain. That's a U.S. vote. One to France. That's a U.S. vote. The U.S. occupies both countries, right? One to China and one to the Soviet Union. And the China one might seem a little weird at this time uh, because we know that the Chinese have gone communist in 49. When they created that vote, they didn't know that though. The U.S. thought the nationalists were going to win. And the U.S. refuses to give China that that seat on the Security Council. It actually gives it to Taiwan all the way up <laughs> until like 1970. Uh, Taiwan is the official... Taiwan is the country of China, according to the U.N., until like 1970. One, to show you that the U.N. has always been the U.S.'s play toy. But the Soviet Union could have said no. I mean, the U.S. would have gone to war in Korea anyways. But the U.S., the Soviet Union at least could have, like, prevented the U.N. from, like, signing off on it. But they hilariously were boycotting the U.N. because of the Taiwanese seat. <laughs> Basically saying, like, no, the U.N. has to give the seat to China. And we're boycotting at the time, and the U.S. like stuck the vote through. Uh, so then they just voted without <laughs> the, the presence yeah. of... <laughs> yeah, they're basically Soviet abstaining, Union. essentially. So, I mean... Genius yeah, foreign policy stuff. once again by the Soviet Union. Um, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we didn't even mention like the Soviet Union, uh, you know, recognizing Israel first. Like, there, yeah, there's a lot of questionable, 
questionable decisions there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, a lot of things are happening this time period. Yeah, recognition of Israel being a big one. And yeah, the Soviet Union uh, outflanking the U.S. by recognizing Israel first is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, like, foreign policy was everything. I mean, you know, to their credit, I mean, what could they have done in Korea other than, like, enter the war uh, to stop the U.S.? And entering the war might have just made it go nuclear faster. Who knows, right? But uh, it is worth noting that the U.S., while they did release nuclear weapons, they didn't actually use them in Korea. They did use chemical weapons in Korea quite frequently, uh, again, against several treaties. Um, they also almost certainly used biological weapons in North Korea. Now, North Korea has maintained that the U.S. used biological and China have both argued the U.S. used biological weapons in Korea since the war. The U.S. denies it insistently, but I hate to tell Americans this. Everything that the North Korea has said about the Korean War has turned out to be true, and everything the U.S. has said about the Korean War has turned out to be a lie. That's basically coming from American historians. So the U.S. It reconstituted a unit of uh, the Japanese military that engaged in biological and chemical warfare across China. It reconstituted them and used them in the Korean War. Uh, I don't know. Draw your own conclusion about who you want to believe on this biological warfare question. But the U.S. almost certainly used biological weapons in Korea as well. My God. Yeah. That is insane. It it was... I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It was a genocide. Yeah. Within, within the uh, internal circles, within Truman's internal circles, all questions were about how to kill as many Koreans as possible. When it came to bombing dams, when it came to bombing cities, it's... Uh, one of the more horrifying moments in U.S. history. I contend that's why you don't see it in history books. Like when you were in school, probably not a lot of talk about Korea came up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, it's it's kind of why it's a bit why they refer to it as the Forgotten War is that there's not a lot good to talk about of it. Right. Right. You can't even spin it. Like it's yeah. it's just pure pretty evil. bad all around. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was. Uh, horrifying timeline that we're down <laughs> certainly like in extremely dark <laughs> moments forgotten wars that are forgotten because we can't even put an american pr spin on how how just like disastrous like i mean the the one third number um for number of north koreans killed uh that the u.s successfully did i mean that always blows my mind whenever i hear it it's like it's mm -hmm. the, the the scale of that is really like is like unspeakable you know yeah and imagine what that does to a society too like people should think about that yeah yeah it doesn't come out of nowhere it comes from specific things happening in history so this episode is running longer want you to take this time to digest process all this information and then we're tomorrow we are gonna have a take section so we are gonna actually give our different opinions and discussion and reconvene. So we're breaking this up into two episodes. So stay tuned for our discussion on this uh, historical series and just kind of what our personal takes and outcomes are.
Tuesday. Tuesday.